0: Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. Today we have our guy Richard Beck back on the podcast. He 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 did a great thing. His new book, it's it's really, really good. Uh, you don't even have to listen to the rest of the podcast. Just go buy the book. It is uh, going to be a book that I encourage everyone I know to get a copy of it. So um, you have been warned. It's a great book. Go get it. Um, we'll talk about it in a minute. But, um, first i want to I want to talk a little bit about loss and life uh, and grief uh, this past uh, Saturday, so i'm recording this about uh, six days afterwards. Um, uh, my dad called me up and uh, told me the terrible news that a uh, good friend of mine since uh, sophomore year in college, Mark Rogers was in a car accident with his family. His uh, two daughters, his son, and his wife, and uh, they all um, survived. He did not. Um, uh, someone cut in front of him, or he was driving. Uh, someone tried to merge back in after they were trying to pass on Highway 36 in the south part of Abilene, Texas, just outside of Abilene, and uh, clipped the tail of his truck, uh, veered off uh, off the road, and uh, hit a tree. And, uh, Mark, uh, did not make it. Um, and, uh, like I said, Mark was a friend of mine since sophomore year in college when we had an exercise science class together. And, uh, we both were too cool for school. He was, uh, he was on the football team. I was, uh, on the track team at the time. And so we, uh, would just kind of hang out, not really like do the exercises in class. Cause we were, like I said, too cool for school. And, uh, we were just, Good buddies ever since. They've played basketball together uh, multiple times a week uh, in college. Uh, we'd work out uh, as uh, both of us stopped playing, uh, af- uh, playing sports. And, um, and then we just stayed together uh, as uh, friends. For the last couple of years, I would go out uh, to Abilene in the fall. His, uh, his church, Southern Hills, had a uh, retreat that I would uh, uh, participate in. And uh, I always would go out to this retreat. Um, I'd bring one of my kids with me usually. And uh, one of the big reasons was because uh, I want to hang out with Mark because uh, he's just a, a good person. Um, one of the things that uh, you see when someone leaves is the kind of connections that they make. On Sunday, which is just a few hours after I'd found out um, about Mark's passing, I, I tried to get through the sermon. And uh, I realized very quickly on that I wasn't going to be able to. So I explained you know, explain, uh, to our church, what what was going on with me personally, and uh, had a couple of people who you know weren't at ACU the same time as Mark and I, but um, had connections uh, to people who knew Mark and had seen uh, effusive praise from someone they knew talking about the same person I was talking about. And anyway, it um, it reminded me of a few things. First of all, obviously, it reminds you of the true riches that we have. Uh, one of Mark and I's mutual friends, a guy that I did personal training for back when I was in grad school, he used to say, I'm rich not because of the money that I have, even though this guy at the time was driving a Rolls Royce. Um, He said, I'm rich because of the friends I have. And I think the true riches you find uh, are are not the things that you can keep in a bank account, but the things uh, that keep coming back to you in times of adversity and loss. And the true riches you have are, are the connections you have to people. And one of the things that you, you see about Mark uh, Rogers is so many people who say that this person has such a big impact on my life. And in reality, like that's the greatest riches that anyone can have is the level of love and affection that people have for you. And it's easy to get lost and to think that it's the stuff that you have, but truly the, the riches that we have are the connections we have to those um, around us. Um. One of the things that a friend of mine, uh, Mike Cope, a M- Mark and I I's a mutual friend, he's a preacher in Abilene when I was there, and he continues to be uh, you know, big brother in the, the faith to me. Uh, years ago, he was on the podcast, and uh, his um, daughter uh, passed away after being uh, on the earth not too many years, um, and this happened just a few years after. Uh, his 15-year-old nephew. I hope I get those ages correctly. If not, I apologize. Um, but he, he talked about how losing a nephew and losing his daughter uh, close is that it causes grief not to like add up, but it compounds, it, it, it multiplies. And this, these past few years, have been tough for me. Uh, I posted something on Insta about Mark's passing. And someone said, "I said uh, a dear friend of mine passed away." And someone's wrote in the comments, "Another one?" Question mark. And it it does feel like yeah, this is just a uh, another one. Obviously, Lindsay's uncle passed away. Um, multiple friends have passed away. Um, one of my elders from my church, my father-in-law's best friend, passed away, and uh, and my mom obviously passed away, and in this moment i i'm reminded that that grief is something that that compounds P- partly because when my mom passed away mark was at my parents house just a few hours after i got there uh it was his air mattress that my kids slept on um he he actually uh i, I went over to his um to his house and uh, he cut my hair the day before uh i did my mom's funeral um a few weeks later when uh, there's some things that my dad wanted cleared out of the house and I wasn't going to be able, uh, to get up to Abilene in, in that short period of time. Uh, Mark went over there and, uh, and clean my mom's stuff out and yeah, grief, grief compounds. Uh, obviously when there's a connection to the people, yes, but even more so because these are things that you carry with you. Grief. I was talking uh, yesterday to one of Mark's best friends, a friend of mine, Rick Bentley. And, uh, I've shared with him one of the things that uh, Beverly Ross has said on the podcast, but grief is like this brick that you always just carry around and it, it just stays with you. It's, it's always gonna be part of your life, like this, this loss that you have. And I hate to quote Marvel, but uh, if you're watching WandaVision, there's that line that Vision says that, what is grief but love persevering? And it's just always there, but w- we don't like the ways that it perseveres. And I'm starting to see how people become that old bitter woman or the old bitter man that you, you just have all this grief and that's this loss that compounds. And it's just this thing that you just constantly carried around with you. And if you don't learn how to manage it, if you don't learn how to master it, then it, it will master you because it's always going to be there. And I think that's another thing that I'm noticing is that if you give it too much space and it overtakes you, it, it erodes your ability to be aware of the joy that's right in front of you. Uh a few years ago, after um Greg Watts, the elder of my church, passed away, I remember coming home late that evening. Um and I get home and I, I'm just exhausted after this tragic passing. And my daughter wanted—I think it was Audrey. She wanted to like do a dance party or to play. And I thought, like, that seems so like sacrilegious. It seemed like so inappropriate to to, to dance right now. And then I knew it was like this is what Greg would want me to do. Uh, a couple hours Sunday after church, I get home and I'm I'm just spent. I'm exhausted. Uh, like a lot of the grief that I've been trying to manage while also trying to like serve our church as as a preacher, like just kind of <laughs> multiplied and. Um, I could say, let's go for a bike ride. Let's go for a bike ride. And I, I didn't want to. Like I was just too exhausted. But I knew in that moment, like this, this is what you have to do. That that grief that you carry also has to be connected to ability to, to cherish what you have. There's that line in scripture: um, "Eat, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die." You know, part of that is a little sarcastic, and so it probably is a little uh, a misappropriation of that text to do what I'm doing with it right now. But you know, nevertheless, I'm going to do it anyways. But We know our life is mortal. We we know our time is finite. We know that from dust we came to dust we shall return. Uh, So what else can we do but to celebrate what we have right now? And years before, I I think I've had so much experience uh, uh, over the last few years with grief that I didn't understand is that I I would always say there's no one right way to grieve, but I've come to realize that there really isn't. A lot of times I used to think that it was my responsibility to to say something or to reach out or to, to be in person with someone in grief. And I'm starting to realize that sometimes the way that I or we respond to others in grief is more about my own need to do something. And it satiates some need for me to be there for you or to say something for you or to accomplish something in your grief to let me know that I'm doing the right thing. And sometimes the way that we support and we mourn with those who mourn is to learn what grief looks like for them and to give them space. And, you know, for some of us, we need a lot of people around us, and that's great. And for some of us, we need no people around us or one or two people around us, and and that also is great. There's no one right way to grieve, and there's no one right way to mourn with those who mourn. And so it takes time and space to figure out what each person needs and to not project what you want to be for them into those moments. And, you know, I'm grateful for the people who have done that so well and so lovingly for me in different seasons of grief for uh, for my own life. But, um, okay, Uh, that's a few things about loss I want to share with you. And now um, we're going to get to our friend Richard Beck. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have, returning to the podcast, the man who, I I mean, he's partly to blame, I guess, blame (laughs) or responsible for the genesis of this podcast, the one, the only, Dr. Richard Beck.
1: Hey, Luke, it's good to be with you again. Excited to be with you.
0: Yeah, it's good to see you again. How many times have I been
1: on the podcast? Every time. It seems like you've been on every time. It seems like, I'm I'm sure listeners looked at the who's
0: on and were like, oh, no. No. People love you. People love the Richard Beck. I mean, (laughs) they are. Honestly, people, early on, when uh, Rob Bell came on the podcast for the very first time, I think part of the reason he was on the podcast is because Zach Lynn, the drummer for Jimmy Eat World, was a fan of you. And we were like, oh, how did you know Rob Bell? I'm like, Richard Beck. Because he likes Richard Beck. That's how. So you're my uh, notoriety that got me in the door with Rob Bell. So, I mean... And your lot, career
1: lot. is just taken off from there. It is. It's taken. Yeah. It's it's taken off. It taken is taken off.
0: You, you know when, um, when we did that pod with uh, you, me, and Rob in Laguna Beach. Oh yeah, yeah. Remember you remember that? Um, it was yeah, when, unforgettable. Yeah, it was. Yeah, top top five favorite podcasts I've ever done, easily, easily. Um, partly because Jana was there, and she doesn't come to many other podcasts for some reason. <laughs> uh, like I'm not like my feelings aren't hurt, but I'm just saying. I notice it. I remember it. But one of the things that happened there is when we were uh, talking, he was talking about the next book that he was about to uh, publish, and he wasn't like, "Hey, let me tell you about my book." I'm gonna, but it was just like that's what was on his mind, and I thought that was part of why it was a really good conversation because like the content was really fresh. And so, your new book, uh, "Hunting Magic Eels," we've talked about some of this book before on the podcast, and to see where it, like how it developed into a book. Very exciting. I like it.
1: Yeah, I'm excited about it, too. So the subtitle is uh, Recovering an Enchanted Faith in a Skeptical Age. And so, yeah, we've been talking about enchantment for you know, a couple of years now. And so finally you got all that material in a book and, yeah, excited to see it come out.
0: Yeah, so it's been there for a while. Now, there's a couple other titles that I thought maybe you had proposed. Um, and I don't know if you have to say, because it might be like, yeah, I really wanted that one, but the publisher didn't. But part of it was like, Something. Tell me if this genre's right, but Protestants are the worst. We should all be Catholics. <laughs> was that part of maybe one of the titles you considered?
1: Yeah, I come I come down hard on that it, and that that Catholic Protestant divide. So no, I didn't come up with hunting magic eels. That was the publisher. That wasn't my working title. They went with what? hunting magic eels.
0: But you, like that's like you start with that story. You you come back to it at the end. Yeah, so, like, it,
1: they titled it. And then I realized, oh, I got to weave that in now, and so I was able to weave it through. So some of those weaving through the eel, the eel theme was not there at the beginning. So they they titled it, and I was like, okay, got to make that work. So the story
0: was the story had to be in the beginning, though, didn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I started off with the so the book begins. We were hunting for magic eels, so I tell the story of being in Wales and we're visiting Wynn Island, where Saint Dwinwin, who's like the Saint Valentine of Wales,
0: mm-hmm.
1: where there was this uh, enchanted well that had these magical eels in it, and if lovers threw in like a handkerchief and the mm-hmm. eels disturbed the handkerchief, that would be this sign that but your lover would be faithful for life and so all of these pilgrims would come to this this well looking for the magic eels, and so we were there looking for it. so I just used that as kind of like this crazy supernatural mystical story. And how the world is not that way anymore. Like, we don't consult magical eels for premarital counseling
0: anymore. <laughs> so, First of all, Richard, you, you speak for yourself. You don't know what I do when I do premarital counseling. Second of all, if, if Storman is listening to the podcast, let me clarify something. When you said you're in Wales, this isn't like a Jonah situation you're talking about. <laughs> There's actually a place called Wales. And so yes. he, might, he might be confused. So could you clarify exactly what you meant? Wales,
1: yes. In, the, in Great Britain, right? The country associated. Okay. In okay, the western just, half of Great
0: Britain. Yeah, just so we're all on the same page. So, like, yeah. he, the story works uh, to communicate how, back in those days, th- hundreds of years ago, people would go there to do, uh, like, have this mystical experience. And now, we're not hunting for for these magic eels anymore. We're, we're, we don't have this sort of magical view on what the world is anymore. And so that's why. Um, here's the second title: How to Fix Your Depression. In one easy step. Because if you believe in magic eels, then you're not going to be depressed. Isn't that part of what you said in the book? So there is a chapter (laughs) where, and I'm kind of proud of this
1: chapter, although you're making it seem funny. But, But yeah, I'm proud of this chapter because I do connect enchantment to mental health. And I kind of get back into some psychology stuff that I didn't get into, like with my Johnny Cash book or you know and so it was fun to kind of talk about mental health and psychology and human flourishing its relationship to the transcendence mm-hmm. and um but yes how to get over your depression one easy step
0: yeah I, like, so again I'm not saying it should have been the title or that it's a better title. I'm just saying like that probably was on the table. one of the things i I, I do like obviously you also have like your your best of obviously William James, as you refer to him uh-huh. King James he gets some some love in the book, Johnny Cash, of course, gets some love in the book, so like you're still hitting the high notes like when people think Richard Beck, they think Johnny Cash and William James, so they're worked into the book, but l- let's stay back here with the um mental health thing. It seems like sometimes you have people who are dismissive of mental health because mental health advocates don't always make the point that you're making where you acknowledge that there are things that that perpetuate and magnify mental health struggles that we have and there are like very concrete tangible things that you can do. And so some would be dismissive of mental health and say, "Well, if you just exercise more then you're not going to have mental health or if you just say well if you just prayed more then you won't have mental health." And when people don't acknowledge like that, like those things are very tangible things you can do to help. Um, I think creates a healthier conversation to acknowledge like that if you don't have a good foundation, then what's going to happen is these struggles are going to be magnified. It, joking aside, like you're not trying to dismiss those things, but you're acknowledging that like there are things that are that that stress it and perpetuate it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I, is that fair to say?
1: Yeah. So, so the book is, the book starts kind of talking about charles taylor 's work um, in a secular age about how we move from an enchanted world to a disenchanted world. So faith is harder for us now we 're increasingly skeptical, even christians are, are increasingly disenchanted, so the more supernatural aspects of our faith, like the power of prayer, miracles or you know or even heaven, those are uh, we soft pedal those, and so we, got, we want to cash out our faith in like political terms mm-hmm. and so disenchantment is kind of the, the skeptical age. And the the first thing I I make an argument for is that there's been mental health consequences to that, and mm-hmm. and you're seeing more and more even in secular venues where people are saying our our modern world is so unwell. We're seeing rising rates of anxiety and depression, and suicide and addiction, and a lot of people are tracing that back. And this is not people of faith; these are skept, you know, these are secular journalists who are saying, you know, what we're having a crisis of meaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, w- w- that the beyond the, the consumeristic existence of late modern capitalism, there's nothing that gives life a durable sense of significance anymore. And so I kind of trace the contours of that that pain, that existential void, if you will. And I call it in the book, the ache. With my students, I call it the ache. Uh, Charles Taylor calls it the malaise of modernity, but it's just the kind of existential struggles we have with meaning and how they can cash you, out you say mental alters. Go
0: ahead. Can you say that, like, dumber?
1: What what part? Uh, like, the
0: existential struggle. The, oh, so
1: the, but, but, like, yeah, so the existential struggle is like the ground of, of meaning and purpose. And mm-hmm. so we have to, um, in our lives, to make our lives significant or meaningful, we have to kind of create a story for ourselves that gives us a direction and a purpose that, that makes yep. getting up, at, you know, in bed, out of bed in the morning and facing the workday – You know, like purposeful. If Mm -hmm. and that's hard for us if we have a job that isn't very fulfilling, or if life has handed us a lot of broken dreams, if things haven't worked out the way, so that story starts to crumble. Now, back in an enchanted era, that there was a transcendent platform underneath meaning, which that even if your life fell apart, that at least there was a dignity in being a child of God, that that God saw you, knew you. And life was purposeful because of the metaphysical structure of of religious faith. And that's still true. Like one of the things that you won't hear a lot of psychologists talk a lot about, but faith is is and has been a reliable predictor of happiness. Um, That's just kind of one of the consistent findings that studies, studies, studies have shown that, that, and and I think it's because of that ground of meaning Hmm. that, that faith has always been a location of finding purpose and significance and dignity in spite of circumstances. And so I, I talk a lot about that in the book, about one of the things that we can do to recover tra- this transcendence is to kind of have this psychological posture oriented towards grace.
0: Hmm. When when you're talking about us wanting to re-enchant the world or have a more enchanted view of the world, some will go, why don't you just use like the traditional – Christian language of we should have more belief. What, what do you think the difference of belief versus enchantment is? So I, I talk about the book
1: about why, why resort to fancy language like enchantment, disenchantment, what I could just talk about, belief or unbelief. And the, and the contrast I make in the book is that we've tended to default to thinking that Christianity is about believing some things, intellectual mm-hmm. assent to propositions. My book is more about experience, like where do we encounter God? And if we don't attend to the experiential aspects of faith, that what happens is we lose our plausibility structures. And the word God uh, is just a word I have to force myself to believe in. But if I don't have any experiences in my life that, that, that point to that word, that help me unpack that word, then I'm, I'm forcing myself to believe in nothing. So enchantment to me is grabbing the experiential aspect of faith. And I describe it as more of a crisis of attention that we're having in our world. So it's not a crisis of belief, but a crisis of attention. It's a perceptual issue that is facilitating disenchantment.
0: Yeah, you say that belief without experience is an empty bucket. I like that because you you have this framework, but if there's no life in it, if there's, if it's not carrying anything substantive that gives you direction, if you don't have that moment where, you know, Moses sees a burning bush, this is the story you you talk at the beginning of the book where he has to turn aside and go, wait a minute, I've got to see what's here. Then it's just, it, it can become just like, well, yeah, this is some idea I hold to that has some abstract, uh, like, uh, you know, bookshelf filled in the top of my head, but it doesn't actually direct my feet, boots on the ground aren't changed because of it.
1: Yeah, I tell my students all the time that that Christianity is not about forcing yourself to believe in unbelievable things. Because mm-hmm. that's increasingly what Gen Z feels like. Like there's this all this stuff I gotta believe in. I'm finding it hard to believe in this modern, skeptical scientific world. So somehow through a force of willpower, I just force myself to believe in yeah. these things I can't believe in. But if we attend to experience and attention, and we can train ourselves to experience God as a daily presence in our world then suddenly the beliefs become easier because now i have lots of things in my life from my emotions to my the way i see the world are pointing me towards faith and so that's why i use the word enchantment disenchantment because it puts us in this experiential register yeah one
0: of the things that we're finding is that uh you know COVID, uh, some would say post-COVID uh, in Texas, we don't wear masks anymore, I guess, and uh, we've cured it, sounds like. Um, that's what I've been told by our leaders. Um, but that the churches that are having the easiest time to get people back are already, well, some never left, have a more enchanted view of what happens in the gathering. And so they believe that there's an encounter with God, where some churches think, well, this is just a download of information. And if it's just downloading information, I can I can watch online. I can listen to the sermon online because I'm just getting information where there's, when there's an experiential component to, where, where God is going to meet you at this time, you don't want to miss it. And so it, it has... I think we're fine, like it has a very meaningful effect, and obviously this time's a microcosm of what's maybe a lifelong experience if if you just have the intellectual ideas that you need to download for your faith, then at some point you're like, well, you know w- what's really holding me to this way of life if it's just like these ideas that I hold to that don't always make sense to me mm-hmm.
1: yeah, and I would say the other thing and this is another stream in the book and i when we were talking earlier about the Protestant Catholic thing and and I'm not the one only one's made this argument, but a lot of Scholars have made the argument that the Protestant Reformation itself helped disenchant the world, which might be hard for us Protestants to hear. But, but the yeah. reason it did so is what I call in the book the mystical to moral shift, that one yeah. of the trajectories in Protestantism is that instead of a kind of a sacramental encounter with God, um, we have moralized our faith and, and increasingly politicized it. And so that's another reason I think some of these disenchanted churches aren't holding their people because we've reduced Christianity to being a social justice warrior. Yeah. Uh, we've reduced Christianity to voting well. And if you can vote well and you can be a social justice warrior without going to a, a church gathering on a Sunday, then what's the point? So I also think the politicization and the moralization of faith has also facilitated uh, disenchantment. So we've lost that experiential mystical aspect that, where we encounter God and so we, we're, it's not just about being good, but there's also the encounter with the burning bush.
0: Yeah. Yeah. If, if you can be a good person without Jesus, then what's Jesus' role? And I, I think you're right. Like y- You've said this, and it st- stuck with me, I mean, years ago, you, or you've been saying this for years, that m- most of your students think that just being a good person is what it means to be a Christian. And when we reduce it to that, then in some ways we've kind of reduced the transcendence of it. And uh, yeah, I think we're we're struggling with that. And so I think, finding this um uh i think ian cron was the first one to put this in my head the the language of a catholic imagination Mm -hmm. where you see things bigger than that so you have uh a line from flannery o'connor uh when she's talking about the eucharist and she said uh someone said it's it's a symbol a beautiful symbol yeah a beautiful and she says if it's a beautiful symbol to hell with it and it's like well first of all you're you're not making a communion meditation in Church of Christ with that language, <laughs> young lady. Uh, but for many of us, it's just been a symbol. What what changes when we experience that not just as a symbol but as an actual connection to God?
1: Yeah, so I use that Flannery O'Connor story talk about what like he would describe as a Catholic imagination. And some would say that imagination involves what's called a sacramental ontology, which sounds very mm-hmm. fancy, but, but basically the sacramental ontology is this Celtic idea of thin spaces that, that the, the spiritual and the material are interpenetrating, that, that, that they are fusing together. And that was a very common aspect of Catholic sacramental theology. So the Eucharist, the host became the real presence. It's, it was still bread, but it was also, in some way, literally the body and blood of Jesus. And so that mystical aspect of thinking about the sacrament where God interpenetrating creation, you know, gives way to the Protestant idea that no, nothing miraculous or spooky is happening. The communion is just a memory aid about a long, you know, we remember Jesus and he died a long time ago, but he's not physically literally present in the room. Mm. And so that's a, that's a more disenchanted way of thinking about what that sacrament is. But I, but I want to, expand beyond just communion and think about all of life. So the sacramental idea where Paul preaches in Athens and says, this God, this unknown God in him, we live and move and we have our being that idea that God is everywhere, present and filling all things. So that recovering that imagination is a large part of recovering enchantment. We don't have that imagination. We, we have defaulted to the imagery of science, which sees the cosmos as a machine yeah. Uh, which is a very different imagination from the enchanted past, where the world was filled with the spirit of God.
0: Yeah, well, okay. We're going to get back to the uh, the uh, thin th- thin spaces idea for a second, but let's talk about the uh, seeing the universe as a machine. We've gotten there because our argument for from design was the idea that okay, so you know God sets us up, and then it, it leads to this machine. Can you flesh out more how that argument for design gets us there? Yeah, one of the things I. Tell in the story the chapter. The chapter is called "The Slow
1: Death of God," and I'm just taking the cue from Nietzsche, saying God is dead. But I'm like, well, God's not really dead, but he's dying in the West. and So the chapter is called "The Slow Death of God." And so the answer the question is like, well, why is God dying in the Western uh, world? Why are we increasingly moving towards a post-Christian society? And and I think if you ask people why, you know, atheism and agnosticism is on the rise, I think a lot of people would say science. You know, mm-hmm. The world is scientific, but if you think about it, science itself is actually a source of great wonder and awe. There's there's nothing particularly atheistic about discovering the the beauties of intricacies of nature. So what I argue in the book is that what changed is not necessarily the facts that science, but the imagination of viewing the world mechanistically. And, and so that I talk about how this argument for the existence of God, the argument from design, the watchmaker argument actually kind of unwittingly participated in the death of God because it's a very deistic imagination, right? Where we, God creates the watch, winds it, and then steps back and lets it run on its own. Mm-hmm. So in one sense, yeah, you can say the intri- intricate design of the watch is evidence of an intelligent designer or a watchmaker, but the imagination, it instills in us is this idea that God wound this thing up like 15 billion years ago at the big bang. And nobody's seen the guy since
0: mm-hmm. Or if
1: God wants to show up again, he has to stop the laws of nature. So creation is not this ongoing miracle. It's law-like and machine-like and God, a miracle has to involve the interruption or suspension of those laws. And so I argue that the art, the watchmaker argument um, is just one step away from deism God winds mm-hmm. it up and steps back. And that's the that's the kind of functional atheism of that imagination, that God has stepped back and is no longer intimately present to God's creation.
0: Yeah. Uh, another way you probably described a, a similar idea in the book is you talk about the idea of, well, it's not your language, but of Christian atheists, because they they view the cosmos as— we're down here in the first story, and upstairs in the, the second story is where God resides and you know maybe every once in a while you know God takes the old stairs down and visits, but most of the time God is up on the second floor, we're down on the first floor, and so it's that same idea of like you know God created the watch, stepped away, and now we're you know doing our best on our own. The solution to that is this sort of enchanted view where it's not two stories it's not God up there, us down here, but that it's one story that God is in the midst of all of it and the question becomes are we aware of the presence of god that's all around us and so you you say you know when you're in wales uh not the animal but the um (laughs) you know location or scotland like there are a lot of thin spaces that are very beautiful for some of us it's the beach uh we love that about california obviously you prefer skid row because of your own peculiarities but we we look at these like beautiful like uh you know sunset moments on a mountaintop great that's that's helpful but the real question becomes like seeing it all the time. Yeah, so
1: nature is obviously one place where even the skeptical experience some form of transcendence. Standing on the on a beach, you know, on a mountaintop, in a forest, transcendence even reaches the most skeptical amongst us. But but if we're only experiencing transcendence in these beautiful places, well number 1, you got to be on vacation. Number yeah. two, th- there is a kind of elitism to this, to where people say, oh, I, I, I experienced God you know, on my ski vacation. Well, amen, right? I mean, who doesn't experience God in the mountains of Colorado? But it's also kind of elitist because not everybody can afford yeah. to, to take a ski vacation. And so the trick is to experience God in the mundane aspects of the world. So I use Jacob's dream as an example of that, where Jacob is on the run. He's in the middle of nowhere. He has this thin space experience with this ladder connecting heaven and earth. And he wakes up and he says, surely God was in this place. This is the gateway of heaven. To me, that's the challenge is to have that Jacob imagination where here in the middle of my work commute or here where I'm starting my first load of laundry during the day or here where I boot up the computer for the first, you know, to go through the stuff um, at work. That, that even that moment can be enchanted if we learn to see it correctly.
0: Yeah. One of the critiques of the language of Catholic imagination is the word imagination uh, implies that it's not real, that we're fabricating it from scratch, and it doesn't actually exist. You're not saying like, hey, let me just imagine that I've got my buddy here next to me in the car, um, but you're trying to say that, like, open your eyes to what actually is there already, right? Yeah, and so I would argue that that, that
1: criticism— um, needs to be fought pretty aggressively because it's su- It is assuming that the real thing is the factual thing. And that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why we're struggling with disenchantment that we have defaulted to this idea that what is true or what is real is what is factual. And I spent a lot of time in the book talking about how, um, that purely factual materialistic view is actually fairly sociopathic. <laughs> right yeah. like if you a factual description of a human person if you reduce a human person to just chemistry there's a there's a sociopathic aspect to that that what's real the realest thing's about my life is that my life is stuffed with value and meaning we we are thrust into an existence that is full of value and meaning life is inherently meaningful and ethical we, we and and we and this is the thing that makes us most human. And, and it's to me, it's almost a borderline insane to assume that because those most meaningful things are not factual, that, that somehow they're not real or not true. And mm-hmm. so in many ways, I think we're tra- – C.S. Lewis called it like, like casting – trying to snap us out of a spell. So I think in many ways, the scientific gaze that bleaches the world of meaning, bleaches the world of value um, is like a – a spell that has been cast over the modern world. And that my book is, in many ways, trying to get people to wake up.
0: Yeah. Okay, in the book, you tell a story of your beloved Johnny Cash. Uh, <laughs> I guess Janet would be your beloved too, but like, they're probably pretty close. Um, so he's in this cave, in a down moment, uh, somewhat suicidal, uh, m- maybe not a fully thought out suicide plan, but he goes into this cave, And he thinks he's just going to get lost. His uh, flashlight burns out, batteries are gone. And his thought is he's just going to like wither away in this cave because it's dark and he's lost and he has no way out. And then he has this transcendent moment where he hears a voice say, I'm still here. And he has this moment like that, that alters his life. And, you know, for many of us, we, we don't have that sort of like, I'm still here, you know, Jacob on the run sort of moment where, you know, Surely God is in this place, and I didn't realize it. But these moments are, are deeply impactful. These are moments that obviously refer to as religious experiences. And you say uh, one of the defining characteristics—I guess this is William James who said this— but that the defining characteristic is that words fail us in capturing them. We've talked before about the idea that religious experiences reside in a different part of the brain than the part of the brain that we verbalize. Is, am I saying that science somewhat accurate?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it's mainly yeah. in the right hemisphere that we have those experiences, which is non more, more more of the nonverbal part of language. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So so we have these experiences and the more we try to talk about them, we reduce what these experiences are. And h- how do we just reside in what William James refers to as this perception of more instead of this need to like uh, let me explain it and write it down and diagnose it and break everything down. But instead we just reside in the part where we can go, okay, there is some perception of this longing for more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in, in that chapter,
1: um, I think I call it eccentric experiences. So I'm using William James's chapter on mysticism in his kind of magnum opus, The Varieties of Religious Experience, to try to. And the, and the point of that chapter is to kind of widen our gaze to when we might bump into God. And that mm-hmm. we we often think that running into God or enchantment is hearing the audible voice or seeing a vision of angels or a miraculous encounter. But if you read James's chapter, you realize no, we're always bumping. We always have these moments where we and they hit us unawares where we kind of get a feeling like something interesting is happening here it's the thin space experience it's the perception that more is going on with this moment than. and most people get this like if you just go back through your life and say "Hey, when did god show up where you felt like man you were on the you were standing on holy ground people just and will spill it like when my child was born or or it was just this morning when I looked at the sunrise coming up, and I just got overwhelmed by feelings that, that hit me. But I, but you're right is that these experiences, which to me are fundamental to faith because they are all pointing us to the sacred, that there is this temptation to intellectualize them, to capture them. There's a really good book. It's It's a big book by Ian McGillquist called the master and his emissary about kind of right brain, left brain um, hemisphere differences. And he would argue that that experience resides in the right hemisphere because it is looking at the gestalt. It's more experiential. But then what happens is the left hemisphere that is more analytical will begin looking at that experience. But when it looks at that experience on the left hemisphere, it, it, uh, it decontextualizes it and, and makes it um, objective and, and therefore uh, lifeless it 's interesting people who have right hemisphere lesions uh, or right hemisphere deficits in schizophrenia will, will see them even themselves as machines, or they will see their loved ones um, as machines that 's what happens in that left hemisphere is that that left hemisphere takes that experience it strips it, or as I said earlier, bleaches it of life. Mm-hmm. And McGluca says, that's good, right? There is power in that analytical capacity. But he says, and this is his language, that experience has to be returned back to the right hemisphere, where it has to be re-embedded in our life experiences. And so I think you're right, what happens is we get over in that left hemisphere and we get stuck in that analytical chain and that's where the paradoxes occur. Like, do I have free will? Is anything meaningful? Like, when you're seeing people stuck in their left hemisphere, like, literally, when, they're, when, they're, when their imagination is so governed by kind of a scientific perspective, um, they will aff- actually have existential crises. I have had people come to me, send me emails, students come to me, and they so analytical that they will like, be like, I don't know if life has meaning anymore. Like, like it, literally, that analysis pushes them to a meaningless cosmos that it, that it, they become nihilistic and they look into the void and they write to me saying, you know, do, do I, I don't think I have free will anymore. That's how bad they get stuck in their left hemisphere. They write me, I don't think I have free will anymore. And I'm like, you have so looked at yourself as a machine that you, you can't even recognize the most obvious truth about your life, which is like, you're alive. You have choices. Life is meaningful. And so literally people will think their way into nihilism um, and, and states of depression or panic. Like people say, I'm, I'm panic. I can't go to sleep because I, uh, I have read so many skeptical books that I think life is devoid of meaning now. Um, that's yeah. how bad it can get. And so you got to kind of help people go back to the truest things about themselves, to center them back in their bodies to point out obvious things like, don't you love your kids? And like, well, yeah, I do. Like, well, how could you then say that life isn't meaningful? Like, like it is a, this is why I said it's almost a kind of a form of insanity that, that yeah. people are suffering from out there.
0: Yeah. You make the observation that we've spent too many too much time encouraging doubters to read books and listen to podcasts when staying over there is probably perpetuating the disbelief and the inability to connect with what's already around when you wrote that were you intentionally trying to be hurtful to me or is that just an accident
1: no no i think it's a pathology of a lot of a lot what's happened a lot with progressive christianity and we have talked. you and i've yeah. talked about this is how in my journey of deconstruction you know i've read all the books about how doubt is good a doubt that it is healthy and and um you know, lean into the mystery. Like, like I've read all of those books. There's a whole industry and your podcast Mm -hmm. has had some of the biggest voices on the journey to deconstruction. But I also think a lot of those voices now are starting to talk more openly, even on your podcast saying we need to make a turn back to reconstruction. Yeah. That, that a diet just exclusively devoted to deconstruction um, is so disenchanting that the next way station is out of faith. I deconstruct and then my faith is, Hardly anything at that point that I I walk out. So, yeah, my book is, and it's autobiographical. It's about my own journey back toward reenchantment through the process of reconstruction.
0: Yeah. There was a time in which I really wanted to talk about deconstruction, and it was a constant topic on the podcast. And I have found myself just far less interested in that conversation at this point. Maybe because I intuitively just kind of figured out, hey, this isn't really bringing me life. And ultimately the podcast is something that's like for me, right? Like I'm having conversations that are meaningful to me. And there was a stage in which I really needed that. I really needed to be able to deconstruct some of the stuff that I had held on to that actually I think was holding me back. But to continue to stay in that all the time, it uh, it doesn't seem interesting to me, probably because it's not life-giving. Now, let me talk about something else. That I don't find very interesting. <laughs> Let's talk about golf. Okay. You, you're on the golf course with your father, and you're having conversations. Uh, last night, I had a conversation with my daughter about golf she asked me as i was leaving the room this is, she asked these questions when i'm like bedtime's over cuddle time's over she's tucked in i'm leaving and she like throws these questions out like when she was younger she would say hey dad can i watch the cowboys with you and cuddle with you on the couch which i'm gonna say yes to every time now she just asks these questions like hey dad let's talk about sex i'm like oh, uh, uh, okay yeah or whatever last night the question was dad is golf a sport or a game
1: mm, that, that's a debate no, like, it's like, to, like, is bowling a, a sport? How about, how about pool? Nope. Nope. So, so nope. do you, what'd is you standing, say? Or you said golf isn't you, a
0: sport? Do you, do you think video games are e-sports? Like, are, are they, cal- cal- I don't, anyway, whatever. Um, right answer. Uh, golf, no. esports. nope, that's not a sport. Uh, golf, <laughs> Um, just because I'm afraid of how many people will hate me if I say it's not a sport, I'll say, yeah, sure. It kind of counts as one. I'm saying like you need to get sweatier if you're playing it. I feel like that should be- Yeah, no, the I amount of, Okay, now, so that's my question about golf. You have a question with your father um, on the golf course where yeah. your dad makes the observation that it seems that people like don't need God and your response is something to the extent of, uh, they do, but they just don't know how much they need God. And this goes back to the ache thing, right?
1: Yeah. So yeah, dad is a has been a leader of a small church and for many years and he's been he's witnessing firsthand the kind of demographic decline of the church, the graying of the church. We're not seeing young families or young people anymore and he just kind of diagnosed it. Just it doesn't seem like people care about God. Yeah. And I said I actually think people do care about God, but in this post-Christian era, we've lost our ability to name God's presence in our lives. And so What I said is my students, the only language they have for their ache for God is the language of mental illness. So they are very anxious. They're very depressed. They're they're struggling with purpose and direction in life. And to me, that is the negative of the picture of God. That's Mm -hmm. what it feels like to not have God in your life. That, that, That anxiety, the depression, the fragile sense of life, purpose, and meaning. And so to me, I'm using that language of mental unease, how we're all kind of really unwell, and saying no if you look at that properly those are all pointing back to where god has gone missing in our yeah. in our lives
0: you make this great observation that you can't find in a petri dish or under a microscope the sacredness of life like you you, you can't find that you you have to insert that because you have an enchanted understanding of life
1: yeah right? I, that's one of the big themes of the whole book that i was saying earlier is that 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 reducing life to the material or factual and and declaring that the truth is one of the most obvious falsehoods that is plaguing a lot of people in this modern world because a scientific description um, doesn't give you a purpose of life. A scientific description of your child doesn't tell you, you know, why you love them. Um, And so and I don't make ethical choices by running computer simulations. Uh, so so the, the stuff of life, the values, ethics, meaning, my, the, the dignity of human beings, the the intrinsic meaningfulness of life that we find the most obvious fact about us, we don't think that's true mm-hmm. because it, it's not amenable to a science documentary. It, and so to me, I'm just trying to draw attention to these kind of very obvious facts. And I go to go back to something, In the very first chapter, I'm taking a cue here from Andrew Root, and Andrew Root uses the uh, Daniel Simons experiment with the dancing gorilla. Do you know that? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. Yes. The YouTube clip where you're supposed to watch the black and the white team pass a basketball back and forth and count the passes, and so you do it. And again, this is a real psych experiment. And then after you count the passes, it says, okay, great, but did you see the dancing gorilla? Rewinds the clip. There in the middle is this dancing gorilla and and psychologists call that attention blindness to where we can miss very obvious things about our lives if we're not paying attention so this is that perceptual aspect god isn't believing in a dancing gorilla no the dancing gorilla is right there your attention has just been captivated in such a way that very obvious things literally the most obvious thing on the screen is the very thing you do not see and my book is kind of trying to say hey there are some dancing gorillas in your life that life is meaningful, there are values. None of that reduces to a scientific explanation. And yet I have to sit here and remind you of the most obvious facts of your life that have gone missing um, because of this scientific gaze. Yeah. It seems that one... No, I was going to say, the other thing I'd say about this is I wish pastors would get more aggressive. I think progressive pastors are being bullied by skeptics. they're Tell being They're being intimidated by science. And I think we need to go on the offensive and say, listen, if, if you think science is the route to truth, that, that isn't just wrong. That's borderline sociopathic and, and insane. Now, I, I get how in an age of where the Texas governor says we don't need to wear masks, that we're worried about science denialism, right? Like Like, like I, I get... I want to be heard properly on this subject. I'm not asking for an anti-scientific perspective. What I'm talking about is the pathology of reducing life to a factual description. So, so for example, to go back to the mental health thing, well, why, why is religion a source of mental resiliency? Well, one of it is because of the dignity that religion gives you, seeing yourself as a beloved child of God, um, that no matter my failures, no matter my shame, like you and I know I work in a prison, mm-hmm. okay? So if I go, I go, if I go to the prison and say, hey, let's look at your situation factually. Here's the horrible crimes you've done. Here's the fact that you're never going to leave prison for the rest of your life. Those are the facts, guys. What makes life worth living? And the facts are pointing to a really bleak outcome. So what makes life worth living is a, a belief that even despite the facts... I'm still a child of God. That God still loves me. That God still has plans for me, and that transcendent sense of dignity provides a degree of psychological resiliency. But if you just reduce life to the facts, that that dancing gorilla, that obvious fact that you matter, life is still meaningful. You know, we lose track of that. And so, what I'm arguing for isn't anti-science. It is, listen, I love air conditioning and antibiotics as much as you know. Like everybody, get your shots. <laughs> let's all get vaccinated let me say that clearly what i'm talking about is meaning value purpose in life and dignity and how we can get tricked out of like seeing these things as fantasies um, as not real as not truthful and yet they are the ground of being
0: yeah there's this invisible gorilla right in front of us and to riff on that a little bit like that invisible gorilla is the one that will give us life Mm -hmm. and many of us feel depleted because we don't have that and what we need is already right in front of us and the real question of spirituality and this is c.s lewis is not um is not to like for god to appear but for us to become aware and attuned to the guy that's already appeared right in front of us Mm -hmm. but uh, the idea like uh, have this enchanted view it, it could lead some to think well you're just going to take whatever's in front of you and kind of go wherever. Um, You remind us of the words of Scripture that tell us to to test every spirit. Because just because we we want it to be true doesn't mean it is true. And I was having this conversation with Lindsay earlier. Um, There's a person who had a a tragic passing of their child. And so they said, well, you know, I think God just uh, only uh, allots people a certain amount of time on the earth. And so my child was only allotted two years to be alive. And... Like, I get why they would say that because, you know, functionally this person's kid, you know, passed away tragically, but it was a tragic passing that with some more traditionally uh, uh, accepted parenting guidelines, it wouldn't have happened. And so if he looks at it just like a clinical view, well, you know, the reason my kid is dead is because I kind of dropped the ball for a second on what it means to to be a father who looks after my kids. Um, On the other hand, you go, you have this kind of, Problematic view of God, or you have this problematic view of yourself, and if you want to get stuck in a very rational version of either one, you're you're kind of stuck in a corner where life kind of falls apart. Mm-hmm. And so, like, how do we balance like this? It helps me get through it. It seems nice. It seems like helpful to me to to believe this. But if I really test this, it doesn't really hold up. Like, how do we like test those things? Yeah.
1: So, so in one ways, and one of the things I'm proud about the book is that is the last two chapters, because I think in one sense, what I'm saying can be perceived as very easy. Like, right. Enchantment is kind of, we're, we're in a spiritual, but not religious era. Right. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm arguing for, Hey, let's, let's just add more spirituality. Let, let's pay attention to these thin space experiences out in nature and on and yeah. on. And I mean, in, in many ways, what I'm saying is, has been said by many, many other people, but what I don't mm-hmm. think those books do where they have this really generous view of what's classifies as spiritual. They don't have a a good, I think discernment piece, which is how, as I say in the book, how do you separate your enchantment from the weird and the kooky to the, to the self-indulgent, um, to the dangerous. Uh, so, so when, when like, a lot of my theologian friends hear me talk about like William James. They're like, Oh, we don't want to bring in experience because experience privatizes faith and it focuses on the individual. And so they worry about an experiential faith because we all know how human experiences lead us into some pretty troubled waters. Like, you know, anybody can just say, like you said, I think God believes this, you know, this is what God thinks. And therefore that's the truth. And nobody can disagree with me. And so I spent the last two chapters talking about, asking some pretty hard questions about spiritual discernment. And so, if we're going to talk about enchanting faith, we need to attend to the temptation of misenchantment, the dark enchantments in the world. And some of those come in Christian guises, right? The devil comes to us as an angel of light. So, the last chapters are trying to deal with that discerning the spirits. How do you know in this spiritual but not religious age that it is Christ speaking to you in this enchantment? And this isn't just something you've said to either console yourself or protect your political party or to defend your, you know, your nation. Um, How how do we, how do we deal with that? You have to attend to those issues.
0: Yeah. Richard, this book is great. Uh, The book hunting magic eels. It's very good. Uh, It might be a spoiler. I'll take it out if you want me to take it out, but uh, bad news is you never found any. Like you didn't find the eels. Right. we never found the eels, Mm.
1: but I did discover a great truth that day in Wales. Yeah. Yeah. There's a chapter in there about different enchanted Christianities. And one of them is on Celtic Christianity. And that's like one of Mm. my favorite chapters, that chapter on Wales and Celtic Christianity about the Celtic, uh, Mm. spirituality that, that can help enchant. I love that chapter.
0: I prefer more Celtic spirituality, which prays to Larry Bird. Um, but you can go with Celtic if that's what you would like, to each, <laughs> to each their own. Uh, Richard, this is a good book. Like, well done on this. I'm very, I'm very honored that you, uh, you wrote this. You also uh, had something earlier in the book, before you got to the Celts, story about being a child in Catholic preparatory <laughs> school, and it's Ash Wednesday, you're a good Church of Christ boy and they put the, the ashes on your forehead, you're really confused. True or false? That feeling of confusion and disorientation as a sixth grader, was that preparatory for your experience listening to Jonathan Stormans sermons? <laughs> the, the,
1: the, the disorientation
0: and trauma that I experienced then? Yeah, in the sense of like, you need to wash your face afterwards. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm not going to get triangulated between you and Jonathan. You're both okay. my dear, beloved friends.
0: Okay. Well, anyway, <laughs> you're obviously a leader at that church, the church that let him go. And so I won't uh, drag you anymore into that. <laughs> so but bad. It, he left uh, us. He left us. But you
1: you let him go. I mean, that's. Oh, we let him go. Yeah. yeah. You,
0: you let him you let
1: him go. Hey, if yeah. you love something, you let it go. That's, yeah. Isn't that like the thing? It's like a butterfly. Jonathan Storman is like a butterfly.
0: If you love it, you let it go. He's more like a moth, but uh, (laughs) whatever. (laughs) Rich, let me tell you something. Today was the first time I ever did something, and that is record two podcasts in one day. Oh, wow. Yeah, I recorded one this morning and one this afternoon. One of the guests was a billionaire. Mm. Yes. That was not you. That's not me. No. No. Because Wikipedia said that about one person. I've Googled you, and it doesn't say that about you. Do you think there's any chance by the next time... I have you on for the next book, you, which I'm sure you've already started, um, that Google will say that you're a billionaire.
1: No, I don't think there's a chance. For a while there, Google's algorithm had me as like some – like my students came to me and said, Dr. Beck, were you born in Iceland and did you die in 1882? And I was like, no. And they said, well, Google says so. Like Google had grabbed my name and attached me to some Icelandic person who died in 18, the 1800s. I think, I, it's, I, I think it's better now.
0: I could see you as an Icelander. So. <laughs> I really could. Yeah. I think your your hair prepares you for that very well. Mm-hmm. But um, this conversation has prepared us for a lot of good things. I highly encourage everyone to get the book. You can find about your own magic eels. Uh, Richard, seriously, thanks for being on the podcast. Hey, it's it, always it, fun. It, it has been like a ton of times that you've been on and I've enjoyed every one of them. Even the time that Oliver tried to like bark at you and attack you during the <laughs> podcast. Um, so anyway, <laughs> Thanks, James. I again. appreciate it. Loved it. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.